I think luckily for me, I kind of think of oyster farming as a, you know, a job, a hobby and an obsession all in one. So I think if you have all three of those things going into it, maybe the time doesn't seem as as long. Hi, everyone. Happy June. This is Anastasia, your host for another episode of That's Rad, a podcast presented by the Littleton Food Co-op. So, I think we did it. I think we finally passed the danger of having any more snow come to town. At least for a little while. We all get very excited here at the co-op for that pesky S-word to disappear for good, because that means days of bright colored flower baskets in the pavilion, taking your lunch break outside at the picnic tables, and more local produce than you can probably imagine. I have been personally looking forward to summer because I've been wanting to get started planting my garden, eating local tomatoes for days on end, and releasing some super fun summer podcast content. Speaking of, I've actually been holding on to the interview for this episode for a while now because it's quintessential summer content. I had the opportunity to speak with Oliver Dixon, who manages the Matunic Oyster Farm in South Kingston, Rhode Island. As he'll tell you, raising oysters is a year-round profession, but most of us only consider eating them in the summer months. That is, if we're willing to eat them at all. I only had my first oyster less than a year ago, and before this talk with Oliver, I knew nothing about them other than the fact that I was surprised that I actually kind of liked them. So if you're curious like I was, make sure to keep listening to this episode of That's Rad. No previous oyster experience required. Hi everyone, thanks for sticking around for this episode. Right now, I have Oliver Dixon with me. He is the manager of the Matunic Oyster Farm in South Kingston, Rhode Island. And I brought Oliver on today because maybe it's just me being from a place where the ocean is pretty inaccessible. But I feel pretty lost when it comes to seafood and everything that comes from the ocean, especially oysters. Um, I only had oysters for the first time a couple months ago. So when I found a contact with Oliver, I thought, you know, maybe some other people from the Littleton area will have this same fascination as me. So yeah, Oliver, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. All right. So to get started, why don't you just tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do? Like, what does it mean to be a manager of an oyster farm? What is an oyster farm? So it's funny, you know, I'm so familiar with oyster farming because here in Rhode Island, the biggest aquaculture industry that we have here, oyster farming really takes up the majority of the species that are farmed here in Rhode Island. Now, oyster farming is not necessarily specific to Rhode Island, but it is very special to us because we have a large number of small individual farms. On the East Coast, really from from Nova Scotia, as you go down through every coastline in New England, 
you know, just about every salt pond and bay in Rhode Island, down into Florida even. But as you go down the coast, as farmers or growers, we're actually all growing the same species of oyster. It is the East Coast or the Atlantic oyster. But based on the body of water that you're in and the methods used, it grows a very wide range of different products, a variety of oysters we like to call it, as it's the same species done in different ways. With consuming oysters, there's kind of two different factors I like to think about. There's the, the overall looks, the shaping, and that is going to come from the methods that the farmers are actually using. So how are they harvested? How are they handled? Um, how are they processed? How often? And then the taste, the flavor, is going to come from, you know, the body of water that they're grown in. They are a filter feeder and eating different uh, species of microalgae that may be more abundant or less abundant in different bodies of water that's just naturally occurring all up and down the East Coast. Of course, the salinity is a, a big one. It's probably the initial taste that most people pick up on as you're trying other oysters. You know, how much fresh water actually has an influence on your body of water. So based on the methods and the location, you can get the idea that there really is a, a very dramatic difference in oysters, whether they're farmed in the same state in different areas of that state, maybe just different up and down the coastline um, entirely. That's really interesting. I wouldn't have expected to hear that the entire East Coast had the same species of oyster, um, but that really makes sense that you know, it's their habitat that's impacting all that. Oftentimes when people hear, you know, when you go to your local oyster bar and you're trying different oysters, you know, the name usually has something to do with the geographical location. You know, in most cases, I'd say. So we grow our Matunic oysters, of course, because we're located in Matunic, Rhode Island. But sometimes it's just kind of a cool, catchy, nautical name. Really, whatever kind of nickname seems to fit that variety of oysters. Because even if you grow oysters, you know, maybe a mile away from each other in the same body of water, these individual microclimates are going to have a very dramatic impact on the taste. And then those little methods, something just so different that we do, maybe just a different piece of equipment that we use to farm these animals, is going to dramatically affect the look. So I always like to say, you know, there's no really, there's not a right or wrong way to grow oysters. There's just a lot of different methods that grow a wide range of products. So maybe could you describe the process of how an oyster gets from the ocean to someone's dinner plate and specifically talk about what methods and what equipment you use that impact the shape and flavor? Yes, absolutely. So it's very rare to see wild oysters on most raw bar menus because in most parts of the East Coast, the wild fisheries can't really keep up with the demand of the consumers, so we've really moved towards the, the farm-raised oyster. Like I said, maybe in certain cases you'll see some wild oysters, but it's uh, a rare sight to see that a wild oyster fishery that can keep up with a raw bar. So because of that, we've turned to the farm-raised oyster. So in the wild, kind of to back up a little bit, in the wild, oysters are known as a broadcast spawner. So when the weather warms up in the springtime, which typically for us in Rhode Island is around mid to late July, the existing populations of wild oysters, they start to produce their male and female gametes, and they release them into the water column at random. It's called broadcast spawning because they're just relying on random collision. And they're spawning 
well into the millions. Now, in the wild, these oysters, these larvae are going to be looking for something to settle out on. And in most cases, it is another oyster. They're really attracted to that calcium of the shell because other oysters represent a safe place for oysters to live, to grow, to develop their own shell where they'll stay and remain in that place for their entire lives. And you're often going to see maybe an oyster reef or an oyster cluster, we call it, whereas you won't often see just one lonely oyster out there. And in the kind of consumer industry, in the restaurant part of it, you know, most consumers, they're not necessarily looking for an oyster reef on their raw bar platter. And most farmers, at least the way we do things in, you know, in New England, we're not necessarily looking to grow a cluster of oysters on our farm. So we look to a hatchery to produce for us a seed oyster product, which is just an individual juvenile oyster. So we do that in an indoor setting in a hatchery where we're able to kind of just trick the oysters into thinking that spring is coming a little bit sooner. We can start this process off in the winter months by increasing the water temperature in these big, large broodstock tanks, we call them, where we will select, you know, the nicest, maybe the most beautiful, the perfect cup. We're going to select the best oysters on our farm that we think are going to represent the future of our stock. It's very similar to the way they spawn and select, you know, any other livestock when it comes to choosing your broodstock. And by through that process, we can spawn oysters in the wintertime so we can get a jump start on the growth and we'll keep them in a hatchery, in a land-based facility, pumping in seawater and feeding them our own microalgae. We give them a kind of an algae cocktail, I like to call it, uh, a diet that's going to really just mimic and reflect the naturally occurring phytoplankton that's not available when the water is cool. And typically, once the water gets above 50 degrees, it's kind of game on for the growth of oysters because the growth turns on overnight, I like to say, all of a sudden, there's enough microalgae and nutrients in the body of water so they can start to feed naturally. We can actually take them out of the hatchery, putting them into nursery system. The time of year is going to really be affected by the location. So, you know, here in um, you know, mid-July, the water temperature starts to warm up. I assume up by you guys, it must take maybe several weeks after up in New Hampshire. I very much related to when you said, it starts warming up around July. It's like, yeah, probably around then, if not later. And then as you go down south, you know, you might get, you might go down the states, down the coastline where, you know, they may be spawning or growing and feeding for a majority of the year. It may never get down below 50 degrees. So above 50 degrees is kind of the magic temperature. Most marine critters have that magic temperature that, you know, as soon as that water warms up, the chain reaction has started, and our animals can start to feed. And when they can feed on microalgae in the water, they can grow. So that is what starts off the process for farm-raised oysters. Now, again, there's not a right or wrong way to do it. There's just a lot of different methods. So the next step is that we use an oyster nursery, and we use an upwelling system, we call it. We call it a floating upweller. So we like to call it a flopsy is kind of the nickname that we use for it. And like most things in nature, when they're young, they're very vulnerable. So we want to take our maybe one to two millimeter animals, and we want to boost up their growth rate to try to increase the survival. Animals that are spawning in the millions, there's a lot of room for high mortality. There's very low survival rates, you know, when it comes to animals that are actually going to grow out 
to the size and the age that they can reproduce. So we use an upweller system, which basically means it's um, a piece of equipment that we put oysters in. It's like a big floating dock. It looks very similar. And we upwell water. We add a paddle wheel that can pump seawater past our animals. They're now feeding on the naturally occurring phytoplankton. However, they're going to start to rapidly consume it at an increased rate, and an increased rate of food is going to lead to that increased rate of growth. And all of a sudden with that, it like I like to say, you know, it almost stretches the oysters out because they can grow so fast with an increased rate of growth. And we'll try to grow them up as quickly as we can to get them to around an inch long where we can then put them out on an oyster farm. You know, everyone uses different sizes. That really has to do with the style of equipment that you use and your body of water and so many other factors that lead up to. The term seed is a relatively loose meaning word. It just means a, a juvenile oyster that's grown individually from a hatchery. Uh, it's a lot of information to, to take on. <laughs> um, my immediate follow-up question to that is how long does that process take typically to get from the very beginning to, yeah, one inch in your case? That typically takes around three months. However, in the wild, without that increased rate of growth, it would take maybe twice as long. And another factor is that in the wild, if they spawn in June or July, and by the end of the summer, they've only reached one inch, that's a little bit too late for us because we've already missed out on some growth. So by doing starting the process indoors, we can actually have these animals ready to go into the water by May when the water's now 50 degrees and we can just get a little bit more out of each season. So then would you say that the the natural ecosystem benefits from oyster farming or is it more of a consumer benefit or industry benefit system? No. The oyster farming industry, like most other types of shellfish, is incredibly beneficial and what oysters are doing is they're a naturally occurring, they're a filter feeder. So they're feeding on microalgae, and they're actually clarifying the water. Now, I think when everyone says that, they kind of picture in their heads and say, oh, the oysters are making it, you know, more clear, more beautiful. You know, they're removing solids from the water. And it's not really we're talking about that they're just clarifying the water for me and you to look at. What's happening is that they're making the water less turbid. So they're allowing more light to actually penetrate through the water column because their food is microalgae that's just free-floating, these planktonic organisms that are free-floating in the water column. When oysters start to feed on that, they're all of a sudden allowing more light to penetrate. When more light is able to penetrate into that body of water, you know, the next thing that happens is that the aquatic vegetation can now thrive. We have a species called eelgrass here in Rhode Island, which really is the one that comes to mind because it loves to hang out and it loves to grow and it really thrives growing around in the clean bodies of water that oyster farms can provide. What eelgrass is, as well as so many other you know, species of macroalgae and aquatic plants, is that they can provide 3D structures in that body of water and that can now provide homes for so many other types of critters, really the rest of the ecosystem, the crustaceans, the shellfish, the finfish, everything else that relies on 3D structure to house its juveniles. So you really start to see when you add more filter feeders in any body of water, this chain reaction 
of just more biodiversity of so many different species that are so dependent on that 3D structure the oyster farms will provide. Well, I'm glad to hear that it has a, both a benefit to us as humans consuming them and then also the natural environment um, because I, it makes sense to me now that you've explained it, but I can definitely see how people would interpret. You know, I think a lot of times in farming or just working with the natural environment, when people hear that, you know, you're doing something to disrupt this natural process, they automatically assume it's going to have a negative impact on the environment or on people's health. It sounds like it's not harmful to the environment and it's, it has a maybe net zero impact on people's health or does it have a difference for people's health or well-being with wild versus farm-raised oysters? So a wild versus a farm-raised oyster, there's really no difference besides the actual look of that oyster. Now, if you had a farm-raised oyster and it was grown next to a wild oyster, they're consuming the same exact species of algae, the same food. The farm-raised oysters really just allow us to grow more oysters and grow them in a way that we can actually kind of manipulate the look, the shell, the texture. We can do different things and use different styles of gear, different methods that allow a harder, healthier, thicker shell, maybe a more uniform and overall rounded shaping that what most of the consumers are looking for. Even in the stage in the hatchery, they're eating the same phytoplankton. We're just allowing them to do it at a time that's a little bit more convenient for us just to get more growth out of that season. Mm. It seems like the trend has definitely kicked off in the last you know, several years, more and more people going out and consuming these oysters than ever before. And really, the farms are just trying to keep up with the demand. There's still wild oysters, you know, in just about every state on the coastline. They can be found in, you know, most coastlines of most continents, really, um, on a more global scale. But there's just not enough left because of the demand. And I'm sure, you know, several hundred years ago when the coastlines I've heard were, were coated in oysters, you know, at this part of New England, I'm sure we weren't probably thinking about, you know, the changes in the environment and how the coastline has been shifted and moved and really eliminated a lot of natural habitat for these wild oysters. And on top of that, with the overfishing that happened years ago, really it seemed like the, the farm-raised seafood was really the only way to kind of make a strong comeback. Mm, so would you say that the biggest impacts from climate change on oyster farming are like the overfishing that happened and then the the rising sea levels, or how would you, just in general, how would you say more specifically that climate change is going to impact oyster farming, or like have you seen direct impacts already? You know, one of the ways that I think that the, the coastline has kind of changed over time is that the salinity has actually risen over time, and high salinity is something that oysters thrive in. They can grow very well. They can even spawn really well when you have high salinity. However, what they don't do really well with higher salinity is they don't metamorphosize in their larval stage. They actually have a harder time developing that shell. So typically, if I go out to look for wild oysters, I always look on a map for any kind of freshwater influence that there may be, a small stream, a tributary leading up to this ocean water. And all of a sudden, you'll start to notice there's oysters everywhere. And as the salinity has continued to rise, it's just really made it a struggle for oysters to spawn 
and those animals to be viable as well and uh to make it to their metamorphosis where they actually develop their shell after the first two weeks of their life as a larval animal. Just another reason that we need to take care of our planet and our our sea because we need we need the oysters. So we talk a lot about the methodology and how important it is and you've explained so so much. So it sounds like there's a lot to it. And we've talked to different types of farmers before, and a lot of them had shared this similar theme that they felt that their work was, like, 24-7 and really difficult to step away from, which made things like vacations or even a weekend off pretty impossible to come by. So do you feel like your type of Farming, oyster farming requires that same attachment? Oyster farming, just like it is, at the end of the day, it is farming. And I think farming is an industry that's always going to be a tremendous amount of work, and you need to put in the hours to do that. And I think luckily for me, I kind of think of oyster farming as a job, a hobby, and an obsession all in one. So I think if you have all three of those things going into it, Maybe the time doesn't seem as long. I mean, I spend about 50 to 60 hours a week out on the water, out on the farm. So it's definitely a time-consuming industry. But as we've kind of modernized over time with improved methods, definitely going in the direction where maybe labor isn't the entire part of this industry. And there's more machinery that you can use these days with more advanced types of boats and different styles of equipment that you can kind of use to, to manage the actual animals on the farm. And then, of course, all of that, you can't really do any of that if you don't have incredible employees working with you. So that's a really huge part of the industry. There's always a lot of work, and they don't stop ever needing care. But there's definitely ways to overcome the the need to, to never leave the farm, um, although it may feel like that at, at certain times. And then I guess another aspect to it is that oyster farming is very busy in the summertime because these animals are eating. There's other organisms in the water that are kind of fouling up your gear, maybe other types of shellfish that are kind of battling for that same food consumption. You have your sails, our biggest with most seafood in the warmer summer months. So all those factors really end up leading to a very busy summer. And when your animals are not growing in the wintertime, once it goes below 50 degrees, kind of on the other side of the season, you get a little bit more downtime to kind of come up with new strategies, new plans, really reflect on the year. I always feel like we kind of come up with the best ideas maybe in the winter months when things have slowed down. We've had a moment to think. And you kind of just think to yourself about all the ways you could have improved that that system, everything you you should have done. And by the time you're kind of thinking about all that, the new season is right around the corner. The winter is definitely slower, I'd say, and uh, summer is busier. But if you're a farmer and that's the way you like it, you know, I, I don't really think of that as a as a bad thing. I'm glad to hear it sounds like you've embraced that saying of um, when you love what you do, you won't work a day in your life kind of thing, but also that you have things in place like other employees and like machinery and like innovation to help you not have to work all the time. How many employees do you have on the farm? So typically in the summer, we'll see – uh, around six to eight employees, and in the wintertime, you may see two to four. I'd say that's pretty average for 
a lot of oyster farms in Rhode Island. Um, it's definitely slower in the winter time with sales. So really, it just depends on how busy your winters are compared to your summers. We see a lot of different, you know, people from different backgrounds in the oyster farming industry here in Rhode Island. And typically, I think on most farms, you see a good balance of maybe some more year-round career-based oyster farmers. And then you see a good portion of seasonal, uh, maybe more the, the helping hands to help you overcome that bulk of the season. And both positions are equally as important because you really can't do one without the other from what I've kind of learned in the last few years. So that kind of leads into my other question I was going to ask. Of, I mean, I know we have some geographical and cultural differences between us, but so curious, like, how did you get into doing this? Like, you said it was a hobby and a job. Like, how does it even become a hobby? How does it become a job? Like, how did you get to this point? I've certainly been interested in aquaculture from uh, for a long time. I went to an aquaculture-based high school called the Sound School in New Haven, Connecticut years ago. That really got me kind of open to the, the career side of aquatic farming. So I've always been interested in being on the water, always enjoyed growing food, and through really learning about this industry that's out there in the world, um, it really kind of opened my eyes to it all. It seems like it's only growing faster, this food-producing industry. And then in Rhode Island, oyster farming, like I said, is, is kind of the bulk of the, the aquatic farming that we have here. There's different styles of aquaculture all over the country and all over the world, but oyster farming is really the big one to us here in Rhode Island. And I worked on this oyster farm uh, for a summer. Like most people do when they start out an oyster farm, you kind of just want to enjoy working on a boat, enjoying some nice weather and growing some food and kind of learning something new. And through that summer, kind of rolled into the next winter. And after that, they kind of when you can start to see that full cycle as you go into your next year of growing these oysters, you can really start to get a, a hang of it and really start to see the you know, just the beauty in this industry. It's a slow-growing process. It takes about three years to grow an oyster. So once you can get through your first few years, it's really easy, I think, to – I think the word obsessed is a good one to use there um, with the growth and with the production. So I moved up um, to become the manager of this farm, so I run this side of the, uh, the seafood business now. That's awesome. Shifting gears a bit to more of the consumer sides of things, why do you think people shy away from oysters? I'm, okay, so I guess we should go back and again, there's definitely a geographical and local cultural difference and even just experience based. So in my experience, oysters are not really something that people have necessarily a lot of experience with. You know, it's not a chicken and it's not even a more common seafood like a haddock or something like that. So why do you think people, why is it not like a universal experience like some of these other foods or even some of these other seafoods? And then like how would you describe it to someone who hasn't tried them before? It's definitely one of those foods that it's not something that I think a lot of people grow up eating. It's not something that you often just have in the back of your fridge that you're saving for a, a weeknight eating oysters. It's definitely more of a, an experience. Maybe not more of an experience, but I think it's, eating oysters is kind of just as much of a experience as it can be as just a food source. I mean, I eat oysters very often, and I know a lot of Rhode Islanders will agree with me that there's so many universal ways to, to eat these oysters. Uh, when they're consuming raw at one of the raw bars, 
or maybe you know grilling these oysters or, or taking the meats out and doing something using them more as an ingredient in other foods. But it's definitely not something that I often see people consuming at their houses. And because of the preparation with shucking the oysters to open them up, I think that kind of makes people want to back off and not necessarily take on uh, kind of more adventurous food, I'd say. And because when you don't have them as often at your house, you kind of associate that with more of a special occasion, maybe going out to eat at a restaurant and having some raw oysters there. So I think that the fact that people don't eat them as often just at their house Probably one of the biggest reasons, I think, of why people aren't always familiar with eating oysters, maybe. We ship oysters all over the country. So even when you see oysters at a raw bar that's not necessarily right on the water with modern-day shipping and refrigeration, you could really get fresh seafood just about anywhere. So I often hear sometimes people saying, oh, the raw bar is not near the ocean. It might not be fresh. Well, I don't really think that's the case, you know, as much anymore. Maybe it used to be years ago, but with the amount of you know, shipping and refrigeration and how advanced that has gotten. It's very easy to get oysters overnighted anywhere. Um, and they stay alive in their shell. They have an incredibly long shelf life, probably a longer shelf life than any other seafood that I can think of. Um, well, I was just going to say that's good to know as someone who does not live near the ocean. But is there, like, a comparable food? You know, like a lot of times people say exotic meats like alligator or something tastes like chicken like is there a is there a comparison for an oyster that is a tricky one because i think you can compare them maybe the taste to other shellfish but the texture is very different it's a much softer meat there's really not as much of a bite to this meat as there is they're a stationary animal and the shells only open up just a few millimeters so you can imagine it's very tender meat it doesn't really have time to maybe almost the word exercise is the right one to use compared to other species of shellfish that may be mobile, like scallops swimming through the water or clams that can burrow into the mud. Anything that's moving and exercising that muscle is going to develop a much kind of firmer meat. So oysters are definitely a very delicate food. I think most oysters in Rhode Island are probably getting consumed raw at many of the raw bars here. That makes total sense with the... The muscle, I never would have thought about that, but it definitely makes sense now. And even I, as I asked the question, I was trying to think about it myself, and I was like, I really don't know. Like, there's truly nothing like it. So when people do go to try their first or their hundredth or whatever, what is, from an oyster farmer's perspective or just your perspective, what's the best way to serve and prepare them and to go with it? Are there any you know, sides you should have or drinks to pair with it. What should we do when we finally get the oysters? Okay. So it's definitely hard to think of one way that's better than the other. Because uh, like I said, I, I like to think of oysters as a kind of a food source as well as an experience. But when getting oysters, I think the best way to get familiar is just to eat them raw with nothing on them. I think every oyster farmer will tell you that, that you should really just try because what you're trying is you're you're really tasting that environment that they were grown in. So you're tasting that body of water, the minerals that are in the water, that that tasting the phytoplankton that that animal is now, you know, turned into a protein for us to consume. So I think the best way to start is just by eating them raw. And then I think sometimes if people have a hard time doing that, if they don't aren't as familiar with eating raw shellfish or raw fish of any kind, maybe start with them cooked, plain as can be, and maybe try to backtrack a little bit more until you're kind of more comfortable consuming these oysters raw. Typically for me, when I think of the perfect raw oyster, I like to have a kind of a 
a few different toppings on the side. I think you can't go wrong with having some lemon, some cocktail sauce, some champagne mignonette. And then for me, I like to have Tabasco or some type of really light hot sauce to top them off with if I'm going to consume them raw. Again, definitely at first you want to try them kind of plain and just get the feel for them. But really once you get familiar with your oysters, it's definitely enjoyable to have your nice spread of, of toppings for them. Mm. And I personally, I like them raw, and I also like, I've had Oysters Rockefeller. Oh, that's delicious, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So wrapping up here, what do you think is next for oysters, for oyster farming, for the oyster industry? What's what's coming up in 2022 and, and beyond? I'd say going into the future, something I predict to see is, balance of farming other species of shellfish in a way in comparison to the how aggressive the industry has grown for oyster farmers. I mean, oysters are just one of the, the many shellfish species that can be farmed. And it seems like it's an industry that really took off in the United States specifically faster than other shellfish farms of other species. And there's a few reasons for that. One is the demand. Next is, you know, it's, it's an industry that you're able to farm something in and Make some profit. So there's a demand for these animals. There's profit to be made. And there's a need in the environment that the wild fisheries can't be met. And really any of those three factors adding up together are going to be why you really farm anything. So I think that we're going to start to see maybe other species of farm-raised shellfish that are in maybe in smaller numbers. The amount of farms are definitely going to start to take off more. Oysters are very special, again, because... There's kind of this culture around consuming raw oysters. There's a lot of oyster bars. There's a lot more oyster bars than you'll go to maybe, say, a, a mussel bar or a scallop bar. There's so many different locations that are kind of revolving around oysters entirely. And with that, the demand has risen. And I think that maybe as the industry continues to grow, we'll probably just see other people kind of figuring out how to grow other species of shellfish a little bit more uh, efficiently. Other species of shellfish you can definitely grow, but it's definitely a lot harder, I think, is the kind of the easy way to put it. Other species of shellfish aren't as hardy. Maybe they're not as farmer-friendly. I mean, well, oysters, we can we can be pretty rough with them as farmers. We can kind of toss them around. You can count them. You can sort them. You can dry them out. They can be exposed to frozen temperatures or scorching heat, and they can be pretty rough, which, you know, most types of farmers can kind of appreciate rather than the, the delicate other species of shellfish that you might have to go a little bit slower with and you kind of start to go back on the, the big production side of it. So I think other species of shellfish are a bit more delicate and they're just harder to grow is the honest truth as to why oysters have really taken off. Well, if that does come to fruition, I'm excited to see what happens with it. So I never thought I would say this, but I'm actually like craving oysters now. So I'm gonna go. So I'm gonna go like see what I can do about that. Um, but Oliver, thank you so much for this. I think this is one of the podcasts I've personally learned the most from, and it was super interesting to hear everything about oyster farming. So thank you so much for your time today, and thank you for. All of this knowledge and oyster recommendations, I have to go digest now. Awesome. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad you enjoyed. Definitely a lot to take in. There's kind of, there's a lot to it in this industry. It's not as simple as just uh, going out and gathering them up. You have to put in a lot of 
work to get them ready and a lot of work to grow them out. But from there, you really do get a lot out of this industry. and You get a very high quality seafood product. And if anyone else wants to learn more, more about oyster farming and specifically the ones Oliver works with, um, you can definitely check out the website and the social media for the Matunic Oysters and their accompanying oyster bar and that is at roadyoysters.com and you know maybe we can just take a, a group podcast field trip down to Rhode Island someday but in the meantime you know we have we have this glorious episode with you so thanks again oh no problem Thanks for listening to what I personally think was another great episode of That's Rad. Did anyone else start to crave oysters at some point like I did? Literally has never happened to me before and honestly will probably never happen again. It's like only when I listen to that one part of the episode. In any case, even if you've never tried an oyster, have had them since you were a child, or never planned to try one ever in your entire life. I hope you found this interesting and took away some new knowledge from it. Thank you again to Oliver of Matunic Oyster Farm for coming on the show and answering all of my questions. And thanks to all of you for listening to this and every episode. If you've missed any previous episodes or want to re-listen because it was just that good, you can find all of them wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure before this episode's over that you like this episode and subscribe to the show. We've got a lot of exciting, or should I say rad, things coming out soon, and subscribing is the only way to guarantee you'll stay in the know. For now, get outside, pop in a local strawberry or tomato or two, and remember to eat, sleep, and be rad. That's Rad is a production of the Littleton Food Co-op. Anastasia Marr directs and hosts. Jesse Smith and Annie Stewart produce. Becky Colpitz provides unrelenting positivity and moral support. The Littleton Food Co-op is Littleton, New Hampshire's community-owned grocery store. We put our money where your mouth wants to be. Local farms, of course. No membership is required to shop here. Come check us out sometime just off exit 41 at 43 Bethlehem Road in Littleton. Or if you're online, check us out at littletoncoop.com.